Welcome to the Healthy Matters Podcast with Dr. David Hilden, primary care physician and acute care hospitalist at Hennepin Healthcare in downtown Minneapolis, where we cover the latest in health, healthcare, and what matters to you. And now here's your host, Dr. David Hilden. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Healthy Matters Podcast. I'm Dr. David Hilden, and today I've asked my good friend and also an internal medicine doctor, Megan Walsh, to join me and to give you an inside look at what it's like to practice medicine at a big hospital in this country. Dr. Walsh and I, and that's probably the last time I'm going to call her Dr. Walsh because I can barely do it with a straight face. Now, you can call her Dr. Walsh, but uh, this is Megan. Uh, I've met her I don't know, 25 years ago, something like that, when we were doing residency. And I talk a lot, but I've got a rival in that. (laughs) Megan talks a lot as well. And so I've asked her to come on the show and help me out and talk about uh, some of of her perspectives about being a practicing doctor. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. So... Megan is an internal medicine doctor like me. We're sort of the we're sort of the cerebral doctors, I think, aren't we? Do the I detectives. Think? Yeah, we're I the think. we're the detectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I met you some twenty years ago. You're now you're you're kind of a big deal now. You're the chief academic officer at the hospital, but I remember back about twenty years ago when you were uh, like you came over from the hinterlands of, of Oshkosh True. or somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yes, you got tell it. us how you got to Hennepin through a long and winding road. Mm. Um, So when I was in medical school, which is at Madison, I interviewed all over, but what I... You didn't get into the University of Minnesota, is that the problem? So you had had to go to a place that would take you, like Madison? You know, we just, uh, you know, Camp Randall, I couldn't get out of my head. I suppose, I suppose if you had to go to a (laughs) substandard medical school, that's a pretty good one. And um, I interviewed all over, but what I loved, I loved the Twin Cities. I thought that it was a great dynamic urban and environment, which, you know, had a ton of culture and fun. I think at that point I was thinking I'd get to do things uh, outside of work. Um, I didn't quite realize that uh, resident, you know, which is the training after medical school meant that you literally were living in the hospital, which Yeah, do you remember that? So we, I remember, I remember Mm -hmm. like my first day in the job, I came into the hospital and, and I called Julie, my wife, and I said, so I'll see you tomorrow night at like dinner time. And it was seven in the morning. So, because back then, oh yeah, we spent the night and we worked like these crazy long hours—thirty hours, thirty-six hours in a row. What were we thinking? I know. Well, I think you only realize how crazy that was um, by getting away from it, right? I mean, I, I we needed to change the hours that residents work. I mean, it's true. We'd go in at six thirty. We'd round on patients, care for patients, maybe admit all night long, and then we would uh, see patients again the next day. And yeah, get home at eight p.m. And that was the next day. It was. But yeah. we had breaks in the day. Do you remember the um, malts at night? At midnight? The cafeteria opened up at midnight just for us. Yes. It was like a one hour, maybe midnight to 1 a.m. with a, there was a blender and the cafeteria worker. And she would make smoothies for us. And we would all gather. It didn't matter your specialty, the surgeons and the internists and the ER docs. And we'd come together and have our smoothie and sort of connect and then go back to our, you know, various tasks. Um, But that was so key. I think that we had those little connected pieces throughout the day and the night that I think probably built our camaraderie in a Mm -hmm. way and our friendship that sort of, you know, we still have even 20 years later. Yeah, even to this day, I think some of our closest friends are some of those friends we had back in medical training. I think that's probably where you learned to finish my sentences. I believe that's where you learned to interrupt me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 
It is kind of a funny thing because uh, like we'll go home to our families or whatever, and I don't think our, our the other loved ones in our lives can barely keep up with the fact that we kind of talk over each other and we interrupt each other and finish each other's sentences. I think that might come from spending 90 hours a week together oh, yeah. back when we were residents. So you're now the chief academic officer at HCMC, the mm-hmm. big county hospital in downtown Minneapolis. Is it have things changed in medical training a little bit since oh, those ton. days? I mean, there's a lot more um, regulation, appropriately so, around fatigue and the hours you can work safely. Um, and I still think we have even further that we will go in the next 20 years. But we've done a lot there. We There's been a lot of change around diversity within training programs with a real goal of reflecting the population you serve, which I think is so important. Uh, much more training on quality and safety than we had when you and I were in residency. Um, and I, you know, I really believe that we are training today's doctors to be tomorrow's workforce um, in ways that are intentional and I think impactful. Um, it is such a great place to be in in healthcare is in medical education. We're going to talk about that a lot more in this episode. We're going to talk a little bit more about what it's like to practice at a hospital, but I'm also going to ask you to reminisce with me a little bit about some cases that meant a lot to you. And I haven't asked you what you're going to tell me about, but I know that a little bit later in the show, you're going to give us just a little taste of of what it's like uh, to practice. And I think it's going to be a fascinating chat, so I'm looking forward to that. In the meantime, I'm going to grab a smoothie, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Healthy Matters Podcast with Dr. David Hilden. Have a question or comment for the doctor? Feel free to reach out to us by emailing healthymatters at hcmed.org or give us a call at 612-873-TALK. That's 612-873-8255. And now let's get back to more healthy conversation. Oh, hey, we're back. I'm talking to Megan Walsh, who is the chief academic officer and an internal medicine physician at Hennepin Healthcare in Minneapolis. Thanks for being here, Megan. Thanks for having me. So if you could reminisce for me just a little bit here today, now that you've been at the hospital for some 20 years, tell us something memorable from your time here. Tell us about a patient that you've seen that sticks with you. Well, I have a, I have a memorable patient story that's my favorite patient story um, as far as um, most impactful it still just brings a smile to my to my face when I think about um, this case we admitted a lady who was just this amazing um, put together 90 something I mean she I swear her hair was done every morning she was so um, just articulate and poised and thoughtful and just um, dignified. And she came in sick. Um, She had a pretty severe heart condition. And she'd outlived everyone. She'd outlived her friends. She'd outlived her family. She really um, had sort of one close person in her life at this point. She'd never had kids. Her husband had died 25 years prior. And she'd spent decades and decades in the Twin Cities. Um, she was working at the old Dayton's back in the day. She sort of was, um, you know, as she said, wearing my go-go boots during Gloria Steinem's, you know, years. Of, and she came to Minneapolis at some point. Um, there was some club above Dayton's, uh, some sort of club only for men. And apparently... Wait a minute, in, in the Dayton's in downtown Minneapolis? Upstairs, I guess. Oh, I've been, you know, so I grew up here. I remember it well. 
But I don't remember the men's. There was a place where you could get the best little popovers in the history of the world, and you sat there. But it was more like a a, a, a stoic restaurant type of place. I guess it wasn't like a, a men's club. Well, originally, I, I understand that it was men only, and uh, she said Gloria Steinem came and burst through the doors to say, "Hey, women are allowed here." And so she told the story, and it was just she had people laughing. She had people coming to see her in her room that she'd never met, you know, just because she was such this contagious personality. And uh, and she said, you know, she was really sick, and, and we didn't think that she was going to survive to leave the hospital. And uh, she said, I really only have two wishes. And my first wish is I want a good, rare steak from Manny's, which is the steakhouse in town, which I've never been to, but apparently it's quite it's good. It's super good. It's still going. And uh, my second wish is I would like to pair it with a beautiful Italian red. And... Uh, and so the it sounds lovely. It by does. The way. It does. And um and she really she didn't want to be you know she had no other big checklist she was trying to sort of meet as far as these are my last wishes, and uh, so I you know I took the story and we we left and we went to see other patients and I'm walking down the hall and I hear this just clinking of glasses and laughter and I thought I smelled alcohol, and I came in the room and the the palliative team was in there, particularly the palliative uh, physician, the faculty doc. And uh, he'd brought in his finest Italian red from his mm. wine cellar. And uh, someone else, a nurse, had brought in a Manny steak. And she was just grinning ear to ear. And she had this glass of wine. And she had this beautiful steak. And she had the whole team. No one from her home life, because they're really she didn't have uh, much uh, as far as friends and family remaining, but we were all in there, and we all toasted, and she told stories, and we laughed, and she ate her steak, and, uh, and she died that night. And it was the most beautiful end. Did you know that, that she was nearing the end of her life, or did you know that she was that close? We knew that, I mean, as much as any of us can predict this, we knew that she was gravely ill, and um, we it was a heart rhythm problem, and so really that could happen any time. Uh, to this day, I think she sort of had all the things that she'd asked for. She had this community at her bedside. She passed on her stories. She had the you know dish she wanted to eat, and uh, it was it was a pretty awesome. It's a privilege. Experience. It's a privilege. What we get to do is being at the at people's lives when they're at their toughest times, their most tragic times, their saddest times, sometimes their happiest times. And you, you that's like this privilege to be around at the end of someone's uh, of life here. And, and I wonder how many people get to, well, frankly, get to die like that. Well, and it's also rule breaking. I mean, there are strict rules. Who has alcohol in a hospital, right? Oh, I know, and steak for someone with a heart condition, the thought was, you know, that could actually make her worse. And I think what it did for me is it flipped the sense of what's important and not what's the matter with you, but what matters to you. What and matters. just having permission to be in that space was pretty awesome. How about uh, you? Well, so. It's funny. I didn't. I, I didn't realize what you were going to say about that person because it's really similar to mine. Was a while ago. Um, I remember a similar one, and I hadn't thought of that till just now. But I, there was an older adult. You know, an old is a different story when you're in medicine. We would say like, if you're sixty, seventy, you're not old. <laughs> you're not there. But when I say older, I don't know. She was probably in her late eighties or nineties, and she was in our ICU. If you remember the, the old ICU and the which is no longer there at our hospital because they moved it. But I remember that she was uh, she was also nearing the end of her life. And she was also alone. Uh, everybody had pre-deceased her, basically. And and she, I was, I think I was an intern or resident. And, and, 
and she was she was a poet. She that was what she did with her life, mm. and and she had this this thing sitting on her uh, a notebook sitting on her on her nightstand, and and I realized she didn't have anyone left in the world, and she said that's my book of poetry, and I said could I read those to you? And it you know it sounds all sappy now, but I did. <laughs> I read some of her own poetry to her, and she did also not leave the hospital. I mean, she died. I don't know if it was that night, but that time, and so it reminds me of the times that we get to be. Uh, uh, with people at those poignant times of their life. The last you know, goodbye. Exactly. I've had a couple that, you know, uh, I remember sometimes, sometimes they're a little uh, 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 less gratifying. I had one guy who was just, he was a little down and out guy. He was, you know, kind of a portly guy and, and he was at heart failure and he had like 35 things wrong with him. And I was asking him, like you do, uh, what do you do for a living? And he said, well, I'm a roustabout. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you know what a roustabout is? No, I mean, seriously, do you know what a roustabout I, is? I probably couldn't define it with the exact so, terminology. So but. here's a guy. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. And I go, oh, you're, 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 a, you're a roustabout. And, you know, and what is that? And he goes, <laughs> and I can't even repeat some of the things he said. But he said, you pencil-headed geek, it's an... Effing circus crown or something like that. I don't even know what it was. And some, and I'm sitting there and I just started laughing. I said, I'm sorry, dude. I didn't know what a roustabout was. And so uh, um, uh, this guy is giving me a lecture on what life was like, like in the traveling circuses or something. So I remember that guy. So we have some uh, some poignant times and then we have some others where people just tend to put us right I in I have a roustabout-like story, which was, yes, which was... Um, entering a room of a patient that I'd been taking care of all week. And he was pretty confused and a little ornery. Um, and our whole team came in and, you know, it's it's all the, the students and residents and faculty and we're all in there. And he, he just did not like that there were so many people in his room. And he said, everybody, everybody out. I want you all out of this room now. And then he goes quiet and said, but the pit bull can stay. And we, all looked at, well, we all looked at each other like, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean the pit bull? And he pointed to me and I was like, yeah, you know, he and I had a connection. And it was odd to tell you the story, but to know that it was a total compliment. That he was just sort of, one, letting, giving me permission to remain. But the pit bull was exactly, I'd been having hard conversations with him. And he said it in a way that was angry to the team, but to me, I could tell it was out of total love. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's a compliment in that case. You know, did you have any rough ones during COVID? Because I have one, uh, a, a patient situation that um, it just brought it home to me. And I, and I don't think I'll ever forget this guy. And this one was more recent, you know. And again, it's it's a, a, a story of a guy who who was in a rough spot. But I'm having breakfast with this guy. I mean, literally, he's eating like French toast. This was just about a year ago. He's eating French toast and he's sitting up. He looks as good as you and I do right now. And he's feeling pretty good. And he's like, hey, doc, this is pretty good French toast. And and he makes an off-the-cuff comment to me about, uh, am I going to get through this okay? You know, he had pretty bad COVID. But he was, as as people get when they have this, they're talking to you. They look pretty good. Their numbers on the monitor are terrifying to their doctor. But he felt pretty good. Hey, I'm not going to die of this. Am I gonna? And, I, and I have to be honest, I think I lied to him. I said, no, you're going to be okay. I think you're going to be okay. And that was at breakfast and he did die by lunch. And, and, and so to be there at the last times of people's life like that, and, and I, I'm wondering at the end of life stuff, how much do you tell your patients about what you really know or do you just try to do you tell them like like the the woman that you had you're having steak with her did did she ask you or did you like have any 
any sense for for um, what she needed needed at the end of her life? Well, I mean, how much do I really know? Because I think I told the guy what I thought he needed. I thought he needed some hope right there, even though I thought he's probably not going to make it. I th- I uh, first would dispel any conception that we actually ha- can predict. You know, when mm-hmm. when the end is, we can see sort of all the signs are pointing towards getting sicker. But as far as really what does that mean, I am no better. My crystal ball is no shinier mm-hmm. now than it was 20 years ago as a brand new intern or even as a medical student. So I think that's the first piece is, is I tell people honestly is none of us has sort of the inside scoop on, on sort of this condition in, in you. And mm-hmm. I can tell you the data I have and my best evidence evidence and my best guess, but ultimately our goal right now is to make each day and minute and hour or year the best it can be. And I think those are the conversations that are more impactful and in true connection. And I also think it's important for those caring for the patient to also have these conversations when something unpredictable like that happens, um, because it's really hard to, you can't help but carry that home or, you know, carry it into your, you know, work week in a week or a month or maybe even a decade later it comes back. So shifting gears a little bit, you're the chief academic officer mm-hmm. at our hospital. Yes. What do you do? What does that mean? So we're a teaching hospital. So we have a lot of learners from medical students to residents, which is the between three and seven year apprenticeship that all uh, doctors do. Um, to perfect the craft, um, and I oversee that enlear- that learning environment for physicians, physicians in training, physicians in practice like you. I oversee the continuing education that is offered to you to continue to keep your license, and then more broadly, looking at a whole health system as a learning institution. So, you know, how do we? teach and train whatever your role in the hospital in the most respectful way that actually adds value um, to the job you do every day. So I don't want to go to a hospital where they're practicing on me. Have you ever heard that? Oh, yeah, a ton. What do you say to people? I can't imagine not going to a hospital that's a teaching hospital. I mean, there's so much curiosity and teaming. I mean, I, I... one of my favorite cases is um, one of my favorite detective cases, and I have many because that's what gets me out of bed in the morning, um, was this lady who um, presented with really high blood pressure. And she came in, and she and I was the teaching attending, so I was the faculty member, and I had a whole bunch of learners. I had a senior resident and two interns and a medical student, and each had talked to her and gotten history. So as the patient, she says, why do I have to tell my story four times? And what I'd say to that is because every time we learn something new mm-hmm. and sometimes mm-hmm. the way I asked it or um, the maybe the type of question that is asked that wasn't asked previously actually drives you to a diagnosis or potentially the best treatment out there. And so this lady had high blood pressure and she'd had a bloody nose or something and she was admitted for that. And so the medical student went in, talked to her, and got a bunch of detail. And then the residents went in and got some detail, and they came back, and they said, you know, she has a bloody nose. She has high blood pressure. Each of these were individual problems. High blood pressure, bloody nose. Oh, and her potassium was low. And they were recommending a treatment for each of these things. Well, it just so happens when I heard it present that way, I thought, you know, there is one condition. There are many conditions that Mm -hmm. could cause this. But I thought there's got to be something unifying here. And so I went to meet her after learning all the stuff that my team had told me, and I asked her a few other questions, and then I asked her one last question, which is, do you eat black licorice? 
Oh my goodness. And she broke out laughing. And, and, I, and I'm right now supposed to know what it is. No, and I can't you're not. Remember. You're not. And, uh, and she said, um, well, only the good stuff. And I said, oh, that's no. exactly the problem. And I said, I think this is a rare condition that comes from eating black licorice or the chemical in black licorice being glycerizin. And it can cause high blood pressure and low potassium. And so she was getting a bloody nose from the high, hyper, hypertension. And, uh, and I, of course, was jazzed. I mean, the only way I knew to ask the final question was because all these residents and med students had yep. taken me yep. to this place. If I'd been at the bedside, I might have also done the each individual problem. So I go running back to the team room, you know, and I open the door and it's, you know, whatever, slam it. Oh, can you slam, Eureka, slam open the door? It. Yes, Eureka. I found it. I know and what I like, it is. Oh, my God, you guys, you wait 20 years to really make a, det- you know, break a case like this exactly. one. And the patient was thrilled. She threw out all of her black. Actually, she didn't throw out her black licorice. She had her husband bring it and wrapped it in a box. And I came to work the next oh week, God. and I had a present at the front desk, and it was all of the black licorice Who from her black kitchen. Li- li- I can't even <laughs> say it. Who likes black licorice anyway? It's nasty. Oh, she. Were she, you right though? Was I that was it? right. You she were stopped right? the black licorice. Her high blood pressure went away. Her potassium improved. I saw her two months later for another reason. And what's uh, the disease? It completely, it's the glycerizin, the chemical found in black licorice, which is a root. And glycerizin is gliss, sugar, and then risin is root. So it's like it stems from this idea of um, sugar root. And it binds to, um, or I should say it mimics a hormone that we all produce called aldosterone. And so it forms a disease entity, which is like having too much aldosterone. You know what's funny? The first thing I've known, what you've just said in there is aldosterone. You know, it's the one <laughs> medical thing in there. I don't know anything about the black, the, the scourge of black licorice. Okay, so should people be afraid of eating black licorice? Too much of it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This so, would happen. To, so, okay. But that's detective word to work, the wise, right? That is detective work, and it helped that you had all those learners there to keep you on guard. So, everybody asking a question, everybody seeing something different, but aren't and the coming kids together. these days lazy? Aren't they, you know, the millennial kids these days? You know, they don't want to go into work, they don't want to learn. You know, what do you say to that? I say they have an amazing, uh, amazing breadth of fingertip knowledge. And by that, I mean any question that we have to ask, they know the exact resource and can pull it up in a second. Yep. I mean, medicine is changing so quickly mm-hmm. that whatever you and I memorized in 2001 is helpful as a base, but it is not sufficient to kind right. of do all the things we need to do. And so they are digital natives. They are really fast and efficient in the computerized systems, but that also means it opens this door to all that information that... You know, I mean, we, I guess, were taught back in the day that you memorized it and then you regurgitated it and their ability to sort of synthesize and grab information from all over the place is pretty incredible. It is incredible. You know, I think that we had to memorize a lot, but then I, um, every future generation of doctor has to, there's more and more to learn and you just simply can't memorize it. You and I both know there's an old venerated cardiologist at Hennepin who, uh, um, well, there's a lot of Or them. anywhere. Or anywhere. <laughs> and I, I used to joke with him, you know, Ace, his name was Asinger. And, and I said, well, I think you only had to learn aspirin. And he said, pretty much. I mean, okay, you're having a heart attack. Here, here's an aspirin. 
bed rest for like a month and we'll all cross our fingers. That's pretty much what cardiology was back in the day. And now there's eight jillion things that people have to remember. So I was kidding when I said that the kids these days are lazy. Uh, they're awesome. The future of doctors are awesome. They just have a, such a, an enormous amount of information that they have to learn now. So you. So do- what's your advantage? What do you think the advantage is of a teaching hospital? Well, I think it keeps us on our toes, mm-hmm. you know, and I think it's the most rewarding part of of what we do being at a teaching hospital because you don't get complacent. You don't um, you don't want to get scooped by the medical student and not have a clue what's going on. And the smartest person in the room is often the medical student because they've been studying out of books and, and learning intensely while we've been doing all of our other things. And to have a, a group of learners and future doctors around us keeps me on my toes. It keeps me uh, on top of the latest science. And, mm-hmm. and, and I know mm-hmm. that you and I are both committed to doing the latest in science. And it also... Uh, it, um, I think it makes me a better person, uh, a better doctor, if you will. When I have some 25-year-old who who points out something that the, the way I've been doing it for years, and especially on issues of like racial justice. And, you know, for the longest time, we talked about kidney function based on race. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a black person or a not or a non-black person, you, we gave different, that's not right. Your kidneys are your kidneys, regardless of, of your racial makeup. And it was a med student who kind of led that charge. Mm-hmm. So you guys have been talking about race r- related to kidney function for all these years, and that's not even legit. And so, you know, sometimes the next generation gives us more to think about than, than, than what we have. Before I let you go, you know, you and I, I want to talk a little bit, not in a ton of depth, but the this pandemic over the last two years. So you and I and another guy, his name is Dan Hoodie, were the executive leaders of, of our hospital here in Minneapolis. And it kind of hit us a little bit off guard. And we spent almost every single night at the end of the day. Remember, we'd sit in my office almost every day or your office or Dan's office and say, okay, now what? What new fresh thing is going to hit us today? Uh about this pandemic. I hope you'll come back on a future episode of the podcast, and I want to talk about that a little more. Do you remember December 18th? Do you remember what happened on December 18th of 2020? Do you, it was a big day. Uh, can I check my phone? Yeah, you can check your phone. <laughs> it's the day the vaccine showed up, or it's the day we started them. And do you remember that scene in the hospital? On the, on that, that was day? pretty awesome. Yeah, it was really incredible. There was more joy in one space than I'd seen in a year. Right. We had been just slogging through, you know, at the, you know, just like exhausted every day. How can we get this hospital through this? How can we get our communities through this whole COVID thing? And then the vaccine showed up. And I think we had thousands of our employees all lining up to get them on the first day. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. Yeah. I also think that um, going through COVID as a team, not only us as friends, but even just being in an environment where we weren't home watching the news and seeing the distress, but being there and being able to be with other people every single day was better, was a better way to sort of navigate that world, even though we were right in the crosshairs. Of right. How, how much were pandemic. you home over the pandemic? Like, not at all? Hmm. I mean, I uh, it I was never not thinking about work because mm-hmm. we were never in. A, I mean, we'd never been in a situation like this where we truly didn't have a, a playbook, where right. we were really um, doing things as the best we thought we could, but we didn't really have a treatment plan. We didn't have 
um, you know, a whole uh, several decades of data and information to guide us around diagnosis and treatment. So, I mean, that was, you know, that pulls the rug out from yeah. under your Have you ever had a disease for which you didn't have a textbook to go right. to or right. you couldn't Google it online? We were flying by the seat of and our pants. And helpless, too. We yeah. just felt that way. And I remember that day uh, as our employees, it was like this party atmosphere for the first time in, in a whole year, December 18th, 2020. And we gave out thousands of vaccines that day. And at the end of the day, it was a Friday. I'm almost sure it was a Friday. Maybe it wasn't. But anyways, it was December 18th, so I guess I could look that up. huh? And at the end of the day, the crowds had thinned out. These are all our employees. We had the chief of cardiology standing next to a food service mm-hmm. worker because we did things in a county hospital sort of egalitarian way. We didn't say, okay, all the doctors get your shots first and then all the nurses. We just said everybody, everybody, all human beings. Well, people come, waited. Do you remember that? They, they waited, waited hours potentially for their shot depending on the time. And then at the end of the day, they were down to the last vial, the last mm-hmm. one of them. And uh, you and I both rolled up our sleeves. We got our shots, and we were the last two out of the hospital that night. And I think I went home. I think I maybe poured myself a little bit of a nice little glass of scotch, and I like toasted the world. And then I broke down. I thought, oh, my gosh, this is just like catharsis. So uh, I hope you'll come back on the podcast, and I want to talk more about the pandemic and, and, and give, give listeners a little uh, some thoughts about what that has meant and what the future of healthcare might look like. I think that'll be a good show. And I want to thank my good friend, internal medicine, Dr. Megan Walsh, for uh, being with me today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So the Healthy Matters podcast is not just me and my guests talking. We also want to hear from you. This is an interactive show where we're going to address your concerns. We're going to hear your stories and we're going to address your medical questions, whether they be how to stay healthy or how to get healthy. There's lots of ways you can be in touch with the show. First, call us and leave us a message at 612-873-TALK. Second, drop us an email, healthymatters at hcmed.org. That's healthymatters at hcmed.org. Third, you can always follow us on Twitter at drdavidhilden. And last, the website. It's easy to find at healthymatters.org. All one word. Can't wait to hear from you. And maybe we'll be talking about your question on a future show. Thank you for joining us. Tune in for our next episode and be well, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Healthy Matters Podcast with Dr. David Hilden. To keep up to date with the latest in healthcare and your health, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on Healthy Matters or to browse the archive, visit our website at healthymatters.org. And if you have a question or comment for the doctor, email us at healthymatters at hcmed.org or give us a call at 612-873-TALK. To catch all the latest from Dr. Hilden and the Healthy Matters podcast, follow us on Twitter at drdavidhilden. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support us, please leave us a review and share the Healthy Matters podcast with your friends and family. The Healthy Matters podcast is made possible by Hennepin Healthcare in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and engineered by John Lucas at Highball. Executive producers are Jonathan Comito and Christine Hill. Please remember, we can only give general medical advice during this program, and every case is unique. We urge you to consult with your personal physician if you have more serious or pressing health concerns. Until next time, be healthy and be well.